0: On the record, on, on News Talk.
1: Yes, this is News Talk. This is on the record. Kieran Goddie with you until one o'clock today. Five three one o six is the text number. That, as always, will cost you thirty cent. Or as always, you can get me for free on Twitter at Kieran We have lots coming up on the program, but starting with our panel today, who are going to be talking about all sorts of things, not least that that which is in the paper, should I say? Richard Lay, who's director of the Growing Up in Ireland study at the ESRI, Tanya Ward, CEO. of... Children's Rights Alliance and board member of Mental Health Reform and the Law Centre for Children and Young People and Tom Olloy Head of Public Affairs at Trinity College Dublin you're all very welcome good morning good
0: morning morning.
1: morning. Um, uh, let me just run through the front pages for people who are at home and haven't had the benefit of seeing them yet Uh, the Sunday Independent leads with uh, Welcome to a New Ireland and a photo of uh, Pope Francis with uh, Antisha Cleo Varadkar Uh, the Sunday Business Pope Pope Francis the grave scandal caused in Ireland by the abuse of young people has rightly given rise rise to outrage I myself share those sentiments Uh, the Sunday Times James Pope attacks abuse cover-up Francis evokes a time when church still stood for love the Sunday world my pain and shame Pope apologises to abuse victims and vows it will never happen again and no prizes for guessing what's on the front page of the Mail on Sunday it's the Pope as well Pope Francis's healing words pontiff tells survivors those who abuse are filth the Pope is even featured on the front page of the UK papers the Observer this morning on a wing and a prayer and a photo of the Pope but I mention the Observer because they have an interesting story as well on the front page which I think about a time to come back to in a little while Children's Hour calls for end to battery-hen life in holidays uh, Anne Longfield who's the Children's Commissioner in England I warning that it's a battery-hen existence the summer holidays for children they spend too long staring at screens it impacts their health their obesity levels their fitness they need to get outside more she even talks about uh, GPs prescribing play to people so uh, we'll come back to that in just a few minutes what's true in the UK to an extent is probably true here of summer holidays uh, for for a lot of kids particularly with both parents uh, working. Uh, Sean Gallagher as well I want to mention. He's on the back page of the Sunday Independent today. No surprise, he writes in Sunday Independent regularly often about business. Today he's writing about homelessness and uh, a not on a dig at Michael D. Higgins he specifically mentions him and his failure uh, to protect Irish citizens against uh, the possibility of becoming homeless. So... Uh, time for Sean Gallagher to put up or shut up in other words he's obviously campaigning he should uh, declare his, uh, his candidacy and get on with it uh, we're going to get back to that with Sean Defoe a little bit later uh, who has been covering the uh, presidential proposed possible presidential election as well he's been covering the papal visit and we'll be asking him about that and actually uh, on that paper visit we might just take a quick listen to some of the Taoiseach's speech yesterday
0: Your Holiness I believe the time has come for us to build a new relationship A more mature relationship between church and state in Ireland, a new covenant perhaps for the 21st century. And it's my fervent hope that your visit marks the opening of a new chapter in the relationship between Ireland and the Catholic Church. Building on our intertwined history and learning from our shared mistakes and responsibilities, it can be one at which religion is perhaps not at the centre of our society, but one in which it continues to have. A very important place, one with greater diversity and choice when it comes to the patronage of our schools, and one where publicly funded hospitals are imbued with a civic and scientific ethos.
1: Yeah, that was the Taoiseach speaking yesterday. Uh, Tom, I suppose the Taoiseach, we knew he was going to have to give the Pope a little bit of a kicking. That had been uh, expected. Well, what did you think of the speech?
2: I, I thought it was one of the, the best speeches by an Irish Taoiseach that I've I've ever heard, or heard in my lifetime anyway. Uh, there are huge expectations. It's a really tricky line between showing some kind of respect to a visitor and giving him a telling off, which is effect, effectively what the Taoiseach did. I thought it was very thoughtful. I thought he brought things on quite a lot. One of the things I liked about it was he didn't let society as a whole off the hook. You know, I think it's been a little bit missing in the last few days, that uh, that it wasn't just a breakdown in the church, it was a breakdown in, in wider society, that we everybody knew these kind of things were happening, and, and very few people took action, from the way kids were just routinely beaten in school every day to the fact that young young pregnant women were brought off to laundry. So this was widely known. So we, I think he kind of he put it up to everyone, but he did it in a way that was not hysterical. I mean, at a, at a personal level, for Leo Varadka, I thought it was a triumph. He delivered it really well, really clearly, uh, in in words that a that a you know a clever fourteen year old could could understand, and yet there was a huge amount in it when you unpack it. He talked a lot about action. A, a lot of people uh, really liked uh, Ender Kenny's speech. You know when he when he talked about the the Mooreland laundries. And personally, I found that...
1: the, the gimlet eye of the canon lawyer
2: that 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 kind of thing. Personally, I found that speech um, over the top, and I really disliked it actually because he still seemed to think it was news that canon law was somehow subject to the law of the land uh, which i think is just obvious and should have been obvious to any Taoiseach in the 21st century whereas here this is almost like a post-catholic speech he assumes that he assumes that the state is preeminent and and, and rightly so in my opinion and then he, he moves on from this. So I thought it was a great speech, a triumph actually.
1: Uh, did it, uh, Richard Mark? More than anything, did the, the difference in Ireland between seventy nine and twenty eighteen? Do you think?
0: Mm. Yeah, the uh, I have to agree with Tom there. I think that uh, it was a really well judged speech in terms of the tone it took and the position it took. But one of the most interesting bits about it, in a sense, was the way that it almost sort of pushed the reset button. On the relationship between the the state and the church, and it established where the boundary lay between the competence of the of the church and the competence of the state, and that the state was no longer going to defer, and politicians are not going to defer to the Catholic Church, and they were going to make sure that the institutions of the church were at all times under the the remit and the purview of the of the state, that the the state would not accept that they could take preeminence.
1: Uh, Tanya, from the responses to the Pope's response there was a sense from some that this in child protection in terms that this was a missed opportunity that he should have yeah. spoken less about the the kind of the, the communal sense of shame and more about concrete action what was your yeah. thoughts on that
3: yeah I mean and you can understand why people had that view because it was the you know that th- this world's meeting of the families happens every three years so you imagine when the Pope is going to arrive he will say something that's very significant we just had the report from Pennsylvania so expectations were high, that the Pope would say there would be a strong intervention from him. And, you know, you couldn't doubt that that the Pope is disturbed by what has happened to children and young people in this country and throughout the world from what he said. Um, But I suppose what people wanted to see and if you listen to the abuse survivors throughout the week, um, Colin O'Gorman, Mitt Marie Collins, uh, Mannix Flynn, Loretta Martin yesterday, It was truly shocking what they have been through and they really reminded us of the pain and suffering that had been caused to them. But the pain that they talked about was made worse because of the cover-up at the very senior levels including in Rome in the Vatican and what people hoped to get from this intervention from the Pope was some action plan uh, some roadmap that he would take those people, um, uh, would take account or deal with those people in the Vatican who helped perpetuate uh, what happened to children and young people uh, around the world. I mean during the week what was really interesting is that you heard from Ian Elliott, who led the um, church's national safeguarding body here in in Ireland Um, he pointed out that really in his experience of dealing with the bishops like Archbishop Dermot Martin really stood out as one of the leaders of wanting to have a system that put children first but he didn't find that attitude uh, throughout the church and he felt that really if we are going to be serious about safeguarding children in the church that more independent people and more independent monitoring was necessary because the church leaders didn't always have the capacity to make the right decisions for children.
1: Yeah, and look, I appreciate we're here in studio. The Pope is on his way at the moment to Knock Airport, Knock International Airport, to give it its full title, where he's going to be flying back to Dublin for for the Mass in the Phoenix Park. And he did speak a little bit about clerical abuse by all accounts, slightly stronger words than yesterday. He spoke of firm and decisive action, but of course, no detail. And maybe look at at a reading of a rosary isn't the place to get through all the detail. But he did speak of firm and decisive action that would be introduced in the pursuit of truth and justice. But uh, the other, I suppose, story related the church time the people will be waking up to is is again from the states and this cardinal as well talking about you know cover up and cover up right up to the highest levels in the Vatican.
2: Yeah, this is a story uh, from CBS for people who haven't seen it where where um, a very senior an archbishop alleges that he told the pope about about abuse and and, and the pope didn't take action. Um, I mean that that was another interesting aspect of of the Taoiseach speech yesterday. I think he placed the abuse that happened in this country in an international context. And, and I know we talk about what happened in Boston, but because we don't tend to look at Europe too often, you know, the, the same kind of thing has happened in Belgium and many many other countries, Germany. Uh, and and this story once again reminds us that that there are systemic problems. That this isn't an Irish issue at all. This is this is a an issue for the Catholic Church and. Uh, like at a practical level, it, it it's hard to see what an individual can can do. Like you know, it it is must be very difficult if somebody comes to you and says, "I have an allegation to make. I don't have any proof." You know, we, we 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 all know that that there has to be a judicial process, yeah. but but we also know, as Tanya was saying, that that the church leaders leadership doesn't seem to be kind of constituted in a way that it can take these accusations seriously or act on them in any. Kind of independent way. at
3: the, at the senior level I think that's what what the the survivors are, are saying. They feel at the senior level the right action isn't necessarily being taken. But I do think it's very significant that he met with the survivors yesterday and he clearly, because that this is the strength of his papacy is his pastoral ability. You know, he wants to bring people closer to Jesus Christ and to God and he has that capacity to do that. Um, one of the things that got reported today is that he spoke to some of, particularly the victims of the, the mother and baby homes, um, who are still dealing with the pain of separation from their mothers who still can't get access to their, their basic records about what happened to them. Um, and some of them talked to him about, how they've been told by priests that really they shouldn't be looking for information about their mothers, you know, you shouldn't be interfering with the family, the new family that the child belongs to and that it's it's a sin to do so. And he promised them um, that he would would name it that it wouldn't be a sin today at at the Mass today. Um, That will give a lot of comfort to people, I think. And it'll send a portent message, hopefully, to other members of the church that might be saying to people who are going through this this diff- difficulty and torture and still no resolution to it, give them some sort of peace.
1: There is still in the church a reticence, though, to move towards mandatory reporting anywhere. Isn't that that's a big issue, is it?
3: Well, one of the issues, certainly in Ireland, where it comes up, um, is in relation to the confession box and the sanctity of the confession box. So that's what, that's what a lot of abuse survivors have, have, have focused on. Um, and Marie Collins in her own PhD work did interview uh, a number of priests and, I think it's seven priests admitted to her. Yes, I did confess to what I did to children in the confession box. So I think it's really important symbolically for people that, you know, the Vatican does change, uh, canon law in this area and say absolutely not. There is no place where a report about child abuse or neglect can ever be held back and it has to be passed on to the authorities. But I think at the international level, what they say is in some countries, you don't have mandatory reporting and it falls back onto on canon law in those countries and that there's potential questions about how
1: being dealt with uh, Of course the Pope is here because of the world meeting of families that's the, the backdrop to all of this uh, Richard we talked about the difference in Ireland between 79 and, and 2018 in terms of some of the issues the Taoiseach talked about in terms of the family and what constitutes constitutes a, a family there's also big differences isn't there in that how long is that 79 to now anyone off the top of their head quickly do the maths 39 years 39 years it's there it's you it's are 38 years how, how much <laughs> has the family changed in those 39 years
0: well, in many ways uh, enormously and in many ways not at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, the the period uh, from 1979 onward has been a really interesting one in that the, the level of non-marital fertility, that is people having, having children outside of marriage, whether they're partnered or unpartnered, has risen enormously. So now it's around about a third, I think, of births are non-marital. Whereas up until the... Uh, the 1970s. It was a very small part of of the fertility in the Irish population. So, w- what that's saying, of course, is that the institutions of of Ireland were changing dramatically during this period. Now, there there had been uh, in the 19 uh, early ni- 1950s through to the 1960s. Actually, Ireland had a very large one of the largest parts of the population that were not married, not partnered, and therefore probably not uh, having much in the way of a sex life. And that was one of the highest in Europe. We had some uh, some of the highest rates of of non married men and women. But in the nineteen seventies, that uh, changed dramatically. That rates of marriage were were increasing, but also non marital fertility was increasing. So, but why was our rate of marriage so low? I think a lot of it to, was to do with being. Uh, uh, an agricultural society or a society that had a large agricultural component where people just didn't have the resources to be able to go and set up separate households. They had to wait for uh, the the farm to become available so they could inherit. Wait
1: for mummy and daddy to die and take the house. And by then, too late to get married and have kids.
0: Yeah, and uh, there was, it was uh, a sort of a pattern that's been remarked upon quite often that there was this sort of late entry into relationships. Uh, but interestingly, although we had. Uh, one of the highest proportions of non-married people. Nonetheless, we had the highest fertility rate in Europe. So when people did finally marry, they had a high number of children. Now, of course, that, that again hit its peak uh, uh, in the 1970s. And in the 1980s, that be- began to decline uh, quite dramatically.
1: And obviously, as you said now, a, a third, is that what they say, a figure of, of families would be
0: n- non-traditional in the Catholic sense? Is that, is that what you quote it? Well, what do we want to call, um, you know, two, two parents and uh, and children traditional?
1: Well, that's why I say in the Catholic sense, in, yeah. in the sense that the Pope is talking about.
0: Now, of course, prior, prior to in previous generations and in previous centuries, there were many one-parent families because there, there were higher death rates. So there were plenty of children, you know, who, who lost a parent early in, in their lives and would have grown up with just one parent. And... Um, because of the high rate of fertility as well in Ireland, children also tended to go between households. So children would go to aunties and uncles and to grandparents. It was a much more fluid, much more sort of complex picture than we tend to give it credit. Ireland was not this bastion of two parents and, you know, an N number of children that we that often it's portrayed as. Yeah, because, uh, Tanya...
1: David Quinn from the Iona Institute tweeted yesterday and he got it, all, whatever he tweets, he'll get an awful lot of stick over one way or the other. And a lot of people supporting him. But he talked about how for centuries, the family was always mum and dad and children. And that was it. And people thought that saw it as a, a kind of a dig at families now that don't have yeah. fit that mould. Uh, but his defenders at Twitter were saying, look, oh, historically speaking, he's right. This is what the family always was. Mm-hmm. No, is that not I mean, right?
3: well, well, actually, if you look at the start of the record before the famine, actually, families are much more mixed. Women might have had two partners in their life and children from two different partners, and they travelled around a lot. And you can see that in the colonial writings about about Ireland. Um, but this is note, that because
1: of that death rate again that your know, husband one was dying.
3: Was different. I mean, relationships were different. I mean, it's after the famine that the church gets involved in trying to perpetuate, trying to stop people from marrying younger, um, and have less children because they see the big families as part of the reason why the famine hit so hard and why so many people died and the farms are being divided. That's what. That's why the church gets involved, very particularly in in people's uh, sex lives and decisions to marry. But I think my particular problem with that statement is, is that I suppose it it harks back to me a period where you might. Where I suppose that was used to discriminate against people who chose not to marry and who had children outside wedlock. Um, I myself am probably um, my mother was a lone parent. I'm the first of a generation of children that didn't end up in a mother and baby home or didn't get taken away from, from their mother. Um, and, you know, my mother's life was hard. It was hard in the beginning. Like the public health nurse wouldn't give her the free milk that people were getting. Um, there are people that will cross the road Um, because she had had a baby out of wedlock Um, and she lived with that for for many years Um, and lots of women lived with that Um, and to this day I think that period of where we're trying to only have one type of family casts a shadow on the constitution to this day only one type of family is recognised in the constitution and that's the one based and founded on marriage. So it means a lone unmarried father and this child, a lone parent a woman and her child, a grandparent raising her children, a reconstituted family where two parents are divorced and They're they're raising their children together. None of them are recognised as a family in our constitution, and it has had a harmful effect on people. It helped justify the legal separate the separation of women from their babies in those mother and baby homes, Um, and some of those children were trafficked off um, to uh, to the U.S. At some and some of those women are living with that pain today. So, so despite
1: marriage equality uh, yeah. and that, uh, you would still say like institutionally or culturally, there's still a preference for mum and dad and kids in the family unit and it's discriminatory. Yeah,
3: I mean, I, 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 th- I think w- when you say we should only have one type of family unit, it's a, it's a mother, a father, a child, it basically sends a message to all the other family units that you're not as valued and you're not as loved. I mean, family, family is fundamental in our society. It's a place of love, care and solidarity and it exists where people come together in that family unit and that's what human rights law says that's what you should protect and nourish and uh, uh, and foster in Irish society and we have actually changed our laws I mean only in 2015 we changed our laws Uh, the children and family relationships bill does give better protection to children born outside marriage Um, and that's something I think we have to hold on to and move forward with
1: Uh, Richard if I can come back to you on on that uh, the the counter argument and I'm going to open myself up for some criticism here online but I'll make it anyway this is devil's advocate That people would say is fine, the family unit is changing, but from a children's point of view, you know, mum and dad being there, you know, married, that's kind of that traditional unit, again, to use that word that will uh, insult some people, um, is the preference. And there's no wrong, there's nothing wrong with, you know, having, aiming for the ideal while acknowledging that you don't always get it.
0: I think what you you would try to aim for are circumstances and environments that are conducive to children uh, being healthy happy and developing well and those those environments are not necessarily with you know, two parents one of which is a man and one of which is a woman and uh, and the the what is put forward is the traditional household that that isn't necessarily what what produces that environment what, what you want are, are high-quality relationships, don't you? You want nurturing, caring relationships where there's strong attachment between parents and children. And that doesn't necessarily have to be in that traditional kind of household. You also want to have households which have the level of resources that they require to, to have that uh, healthy development. They need to be able to have the resources to be able to afford to, to eat the uh, good food, to have the right kind of experiences, to take part in their communities those all contribute to a happy healthy child and they're ones which you can you can achieve in all kinds of different configurations you know there is there is nothing that uh, is necessary about having a particular form of household. It's all about the environment that any household produces. Uh,
1: Tom, the Pope yesterday addressed uh, the World Meeting of Families at Croke Park yesterday and that the image of the family that was portrayed that they talked about all families in different circumstances and struggling with different issues and particularly they wanted to reach out to families who were struggling. But I suppose it was, again, I'm going to keep using this phrase and apologies, but the traditional family unit was still what most of the conversations were based around. Like as the numbers of people, I suppose, uh, I don't want to say settling, sorry, but the number of people living in, in family units that are a little bit different where there's maybe two men and two or two women or there's one mother or one father or whatever it might be, or second marriages, third marriages. Uh, how difficult is it for the church to, I suppose, uh, balance what is there, what they would consider, if not kind of core biblical teaching, but core Catholic teaching or Catholic ethos with the changing family dynamic in Ireland?
2: Well, it would appear to be very difficult, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, what what, what Richard says is absolutely correct. Anybody who has any kind of understanding of history who goes back and looks at marriage records in Tudor period or, you know, look at Daniel O'Connell's life. Anybody who understands history knows that the so-called traditional family is a myth. And yet, church, and not just the Catholic church. Yeah, my Protestant Protestant grandfather churches.
1: had stepbrothers and half-brothers, and he doesn't know half of them, actually. Yeah, they all I had to go back and do a family tree in primary school. I never <laughs> scratched my head. He couldn't even tell me his grandparents. Why? <laughs> yeah, and I
2: think family trees were censored in the past, weren't they? But 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 they're, they're very, very interesting. Um, but, but clearly, the Catholic church, but not just the Catholic church. You know, the Protestant churches don't, don't allow remarriage in church. You know, they don't accept divorce either. I mean, this idea that... Um, uh, the Catholic Church is unique, and its its, it's problem with, with gay marriage is, is completely erroneous. The Anglican Church uh, also has a huge problem with it, and it has a problem within this island. People in the north tend to be against gay marriage. Uh, Protestants in the south tend to be pro-gay marriage. But also, in the Anglican communion as a whole, in Africa, there is a very, very strong anti-gay Sentiment within the church, Mm. whereas in Europe there tends not to be. And of course, that's part of what's going on here. The Pope is uh, not just catering to, uh, you know, kind of post Catholic societies in Western Europe, he's catering to to hardline African countries and, and, you know, what's going on in Latin America. The diversity of the church, which must be quite exciting as a leader to to have to deal with, also, uh, you know, imposes a very, uh, yeah, he, he, he can't square the circle. But they're not dealing with it well from our point of view, and that's for sure.
1: Yeah, from from actually a communications mm. point of view, because they always say, you know, know the audience you're speaking to. At mm. like the Pope, it, like... Is he really speaking, like, w- there was a time that Ireland was kind of the jewel in the crown, you know, a mm. faithful people in a faithful state. Uh, not anymore. And I suppose while we're fixated on what he's saying here and speaking to survivors and all that, like, his wider audience, as you said, is Latin America and Africa. Like That's that's the growth market. That's who, have, that's who he's speaking to most of the time, is it?
2: And as a Latin American pope, I mean, he must be even more conscious of it than, than previous European popes. I mean, he's the first, I think I'm correct in saying yeah, the first, first non-European. So yes, I mean that—that's his—that's his market. That's where the growth is. And wouldn't you, if you were, let's pretend the church is a business for a second, you've got a shrinking market in one area and a huge expanding market elsewhere. We would. Yeah. If yeah. you any sense and all, if your product is valuable <laughs> in that emerging
1: market, don't change the product. Don't change the product.
3: During, during the week, there was a protest organised by We Are Church, um, and Ursula Halligan uh, did, you know, the most amazing intervention, most most emotive intervention intervention uh, for diverse family forms. And what they have said when they're protesting, I they protested again yesterday um, on the Haypenny Bridge, is that. Uh, The Pope Francis is actually our best hope of any reform in this area, because if you do look at what he has said um, about diversity in the past, I mean, he's the first pope to baptise a child born outside marriage. Um, And he's sending a message by doing that. Um, He's the first pope to say that people who are divorced should actually be able to take the sacrament Um, and that he has been conciliatory towards LGBTI people. But yes, at the same time, I suppose what he hasn't done in these different circumstances is take on the the doctrinarians within the church might be perpetuating that only one type of family uh, can exist. But I have to say, I do do agree with the We Are Church group. I think um, Pope Francis is probably the best chance we have because he is a Jesuit. He's more liberal. He's more connected to many of our values around social justice and equality and poverty. And if there is someone who can take on the, the tough more, job though the, isn't yeah, it it's a tough because job the, the, yeah. the
1: opaque nature of the Vatican yeah. means that you know yeah. from the outside we kind of look at the Pope and we think right you can yeah. you can decide whatever you want yeah. but that's yeah. not true
3: and, that, and that's what Archbishop Martin said during the week he doesn't have the people around him that he needs to be able to t- take decisive action necessarily so I think that's his big challenge as Pope
1: well look on that note we'll take a quick break uh, Richard, Tanya and Tom are going nowhere on the record on, on Talk if you are listening to On The Record Kieran he with you until one o'clock uh, Richard Late is the director of the Growing Up in Ireland study at the SRI Tanya Ward CEO of Children's Rights Alliance and Tom Malloy Head of Public Affairs at Trinity College are all with me in studio
0: Can I just correct you on one thing there Yes uh, my, my bosses at uh, Trinity College Dublin would would really not be happy unless I pointed out I am actually oh, you also Professor there. of Sociology at Trinity College they're the people who pay my salaries so oh, okay. I shouldn't really say that I, I don't actually work at the SRI
1: Ok well the, the Growing Up in Ireland study by the SRI I, but uh, Richard uh, is an employee College. of Trinity College, where the, with, which this study has been done in conjunction with. How's that?
0: Yes, that sounds good. Okay, okay.
1: perfect. We won't make that mistake again. Uh, we want to turn our attention. I mentioned a story at the start of the show that's on the front page of the Observer. Children's R calls for end to battery hen life and holidays. Urgent action needed to stop children... Children leading a battery hen existence during the summer holidays. It's damaging their mental health, it's contributing to violence and ensuring ensuring they return to school in worse health than when they left. This is according to Anne Longfield. She is the Children's Commissioner in England, the Children's Czar. And uh, she's talking, amongst other things, about uh, play on prescription from GPs. Tanya, what did you make of this?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I'm a parent myself and I've got, I've got two children so I like, uh, and I kind of could see it echoes of that myself in terms of the summer, the summer holidays. Two battery
1: hens yourself at home?
3: Yeah, well, I try to avoid the battery <laughs> hen in myself. But I mean, if you think about like the past 20 years ago, um, you know, children were everywhere. they were on the streets. They were playing everywhere. You go to restaurants, they were hanging out, they were playing everywhere. Um, there were probably more places for children to be. And I think we actually exist in a society where we expect children to be contained. So we put them in the creche, we pick them up, we bring them home. and um, We bring them to their sports club, we pick them up and bring them home. and um, We don't actually give children and young people the space to do what they want outside. Um, and we don't invest enough in play facilities and outdoor facilities and in their youth services for children and young people. Um, and you know, something I really noticed as a parent, you know when you go to a restaurant that's not very friendly for children, you know, you get the looks, you know, the staff aren't very happy oh, with it. Yeah. I mean that's a constant thing and I, I've actually, I have this, I, my map of Dublin is, I only go to play places where really I know... And you hate
1: doing it, but you give them the phone or something just because you're embarrassed that they're running around throwing olives at each other. Yeah, I can't trust them
3: with the phone, so I can well, let's like, throw that at each yeah, other. Yeah, 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 uh, because I have two people that are, are... One in particular that's a very active little person, so, you know, can, ca- can cause mayhem uh, anywhere we go. Uh, and I do think there is a problem in society about how we deal with children and how they get to exist in, in, in our society. And I do think we need to be looking about more outdoor spaces and giving children a chance to be children. Um, uh, in everyday life
1: yeah this, this we should say obviously is from the uk uh, but richard I, I assume the experiences would be similar enough to a degree would they be here
0: they're, they're pretty similar so uh, the, w- it's really interesting looking at how our society has changed over time as tanya said there's been radical changes in the way that we parent you know and in not only in the way that we parent but the environments in which we parent in so our environments now are much more conducive to children becoming overweight and being part of that is their inactivity. That children, they're less likely to be outside. And when they're outside, they're, they're not, in a sense, you know, running around and doing whatever they fancy. Also, in terms of the diet, that, that kind of thing's changed. Mm-hmm. And we had some really interesting data that showed that if we go back to 1948, because we had some data from a GP survey from 1948 for the Irish population, mm-hmm. and we were looking at weights and heights for children in 48. And then back in the early 1990s, uh, early 2000s, and in 2007. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what we saw across that entire period was children were significantly taller. So they were, they were about, uh, I think they were about 10% taller than they were in the late 1940s. You know, we children are are much healthier in many ways in Ireland now. used to be that stunting was a real issue that people were concerned about. So healthy in that respect. But when we looked at their weights, they were a third heavier. So 10% taller, but a third heavier. And, of course, what's going to make you measure as being overweight or uh, being obese is that ratio, you know, between height and weight. Mm. And clearly we're putting on more weight than we are height here. And that's because of a large number of factors in kids' lives now like tanya i've I have three kids uh and the one of the big issues this summer is trying to find activities for them activities that they're going to want to do that mean that they're not just in the house on those electronic devices because they find them really attractive you know they're they're, they're things that children want to do, but they're things which are going to mean that they're getting very little in that way of activity now, just as I did do about family form what i'm gonna say is when I was a child okay uh I spent many hours laying on the floor with toy soldiers, setting them up and doing very inactive things. You know, this being inactive in your house is not something that we've invented with electronic devices. Yeah. But we yeah. just do more of it now. So children are not getting the same level of exercise they would have in the past.
1: Uh, how much of that is explained by two parents working in the summer? Because i have struck and I'm going to... My mother listening to me is going to think, oh, I did not have it easy. What are you talking about? But... uh well, she was at home, say, when we were very young before she went back to work. Like, at least she was able to kind of kick us out into the garden. Whereas I know now my kids are not at school going age yet, so we don't have to deal with the summers off. We will have to deal with it in a couple of years. Um, but I just see from some of my friends and, and cousins and things that a big problem for them is that mum and dad are going out to work in the summer. So that the kind of the activities all have to be kind of scheduled things, and they're constantly looking for summer camps yeah. to do that type of stuff.
0: Mm. We uh, We structure their time much more, though, than we did in the past. So I think in earlier generations, there would have been this idea of natural growth, natural development. What you do is, as you say, you put them outside the door at 9 a.m. and you tell them to be back for their dinner at 5.30, you know, and then they can do whatever they want. They can run off and do whatever. Now, that would be seen as bad parenting now wouldn't it I think many people are going to say you can't do that that's not something which is acceptable which (laughs) means that you have to be a much more proactive parent you have to plan ahead you have to have things to do Mm. so even if you are a parent who's not working full time uh, you've got to plan things to do with your children when you're at home with them and if you are working as you say many parents are working nonetheless they are going to have to plan something for their children to do and they've got to have somebody there with them Tanya
3: yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the other thing I think that comes from that article is talking about children being overweight and obese. And probably what's happening during the summer is that children are probably eating not eating as well as they would during the year. And I know in the UK, children are more likely to get a meal, a school meal. Um, and that, that makes a big difference, actually, to your nutrition and, and your health. And um, one of the things just really struck by the stats that you're talking about, Richard, and knowing, like knowing the big divider there, it's not actually physical activity because physical activity hasn't really changed. It's actually down to uh, what's happened in the market. The marketplace and what's happened to food that children are being fed is that um, heavy calorific foods are being marketed to families and to children. People are no ring. Abs are made
1: in the kitchen. Isn't that what they say? Yeah, yeah
3: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, <laughs> if you talk to the Irish Heart Foundation, they say that's actually what the issue is. There hasn't been this collapse in personal responsibility when it comes to um, obesity and food. It's down to the marketing of food and children in particular are heavily marketed to. So if they are watching more TV, they're more likely to be exposed to more advertisements, They're more likely to want to eat or drink the things that are, that are bad for them. And actually, if we're really serious about child health and welfare and obesity levels, we need to start looking at what that's being put in their mouth.
1: Tom, uh, the, uh, the the food and drinks industry, then I, it strikes me it's in their interest that we keep the focus on activity as opposed to food. Perhaps, perhaps it is. I, I, personally, I mean, we all have our whipping boy here.
2: Personally, I blame the, the car industry. I, I think we have become a car dependent culture and, and, and that really is bad for, for kids and you know, I, I make my four children walk to school, and it's about a half an hour walk. And I have to say, there's so much bad driving around. So many people break the lights, even when it's you know green for a pedestrian, that it is a bit worrying. And even last night, my son came home and he witnessed a car crash. It's it, it, the, the very poor level of driving in this country really makes it very difficult to, at a very basic level, shoo your kids out and say off you go. And and come back in a couple of hours. Um, we don't have enough pedestrian crossing. We we are a car culture, and car cultures lead to all kinds of problems, and that's one of them. We also don't have enough uh, wildlife. Even the the great parks in in Dublin, they're all you know they've all got footpaths. They're kind of dreary and and keep off the grass kind of signs. And there, you know, wh- where can children go? Uh, I I really don't know. I scratch my head. In in, in where we, where we were on holidays this summer, you know, the kids could go off into forests, catch snakes, all those kind of things. There are, no, there are no places teeming with wildlife that are interesting for, for children to go. And the and third thing that strikes me is I think schools kind of infantilize children a bit. You know, when I went to school, if you were over 16, you were allowed to smoke because that was law. And I think that should be the case today. Just as we, we tell t- kids you know, you have to study Irish and English and maths and you're over 16, you don't even have to go to school if you're over 16. Why can't we slowly give children more, more rights and, and, and more freedoms than than we do. I, I think, you know, schools should let children go off at lunchtime if they want to. What, what, we, we, the schools are... A very big force for, for, you know, you can't cut your hair this way. You can't do anything, basically. And then we wonder, scratch our heads and say, why don't our children show more initiative?
1: Yeah, Tanya, do we infantilise them a little bit? You know, there's this, I suppose, fussy parenting, fussy teaching, just fussy overprotection. When the fact is, if you actually look at the statistics, they're safer now than they've ever been.
3: Yeah, I think, I, I think, I think that's correct. And I think probably the reason for the way we talk about children in our society is because of the, the spectre of the child protection. Um, issues that have happened in the past. So all these you know 17 uh, reports that have been published showing how we failed to protect very vulnerable children, failed to listen to them, has really focused our attention on child protection issues, um, but less maybe on children as having rights and independence and being able to make decisions about themselves. Um, and you really feel that for children and young people in the teenage years, actually. Um, so when an opportunity came up to give children the right to vote at the age of 16 in local and European elections, it's something I would have supported because yeah. I felt it was going to help actually uh, get children much more involved in politics, much more interested um, and get them developing the political participation skills. I mean, some of the things that were said in the, in the Oireachtas were pretty shocking about teenagers. Um, and and you see that. You see that on an ongoing basis. So you need to you need to develop young people in their teenage years and their capacities are different. You know, you can get a very vulnerable 16 year old. You can get a very wily 12 uh, year old. We need to start looking at teenagers in a different way, giving them more responsibility because when they turn eighteen, it's not a cliff. you know you want mm. them to be able to take you know control for themselves, make autonomous decisions, take responsibility for themselves when they turn eighteen, uh, and that doesn't happen just by giving them rights at the age of eighteen
1: as expected, my mother's texted me to suggest <laughs> uh, it was not easy at all having four of us tearing around the house uh, <laughs> tearing her hair out um uh, Richard. When we talk about this and how society has changed, I'm struck as well by conversations that I often have in the studio about housing policy and how people's housing needs and expectations will change over the next few years. And people living maybe more in apartments with children and having services nearby. Uh, To what extent, then, do we need to be concerned about some of the points Tom made that those services can't just be, you know, that there's a shop and that there's a school and that there's a guard station, a post office, whatever it happens to be. That there's also shared spaces for children.
0: Mm. Yeah, this is, this is where the sort of policy of laissez-faire of, of leave it to the parents and then blaming the parents when things go wrong with the children falls flat. Because the, what we need to think here are about coordinating and developing the environments in which children are growing up. So they've got to, we, you've got to make sure that, particularly where children are increasingly living in apartments, that there are going to be spaces where those children can play outside in a safe way and where parents can observe them. You've got to make sure that there, are, there is going to be that green space that uh, contributes to, to well-being and that uh, children... Uh, and parents can can get access to these things and in, the, in levels that are going to mean that children get the level of exercise that they need. They're meant to be getting an hour's exercise every day. Now, even officially within our schools, we don't deliver that. So schools, uh, very few schools in Ireland would give children an hour's physical exercise a day because it's got to it gets crowded out by the academic curriculum, which itself is very important. But children's physical and mental well-being is important. Did too. they ever give an hour a day? I don't remember
1: getting an hour's exercise yeah. a day in school. I mean, we, we,
3: we, we've had a pretty poor record on physical education, actually, uh, in Ireland and schools, to be, to be fair. Um, and a lot of the time where young people will be getting their activity in the past is in the GA, the local GA club, There's the sports clubs played a really big role, actually, in promoting physical physical activity. But the schools themselves have, have really suffered. And if you look at studies in the past, we were like, you know, we had the second poorest record on physical education in school in schooling, which is why the Department of Health does have have a physical education strategy for children and young people.
2: Mm but I would guess that the vast majority of children live within half an hour of walking or cycling to school but because of the absurd amount of school books that they're expected to bring in they can't you know you can't expect 10 euros in the school no lockers even if there are you know can we not just clamp down on the ludicrous number of books that parents expect to buy apart from the expense of it of course
1: yeah look on that note uh, Tom Malloy Head of Public Affairs at Trinity College uh, Tanya Ward CEO of the Children's Rights Alliance and Richard Light Director of the Growing Up in Ireland Study and Professor of Sociology at Trinity College Dublin as well make sure I get that right like knock international Airport uh, will be staying with me back after this quick break.
2: On the record, on the
1: record. News Talk. This is News Talk. You're listening to On the Record. Kieran Godihee with you till one. Tom Malloy, Head of Public Affairs at Trinity College. Tanya Ward, CEO of the Children's Rights Alliance. And Richard Light, uh, Director of Growing Up in Ireland Study and Professor of Sociology at Trinity are all with me in studio. Uh, we were going to talk about uh, childcare and budget policy because I suppose the, the papers would be full of kite flying and all these things if it wasn't for the Pope on the front pages. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But uh, there is as well some coverage in the papers about vaccinations and measles vaccinations and this is because there's been that outbreak in Dublin's north inner city Uh, about 14 cases I think is what the, the the count is up to and Tanya I was just interested to get your take on this because I was on Newstalk Breakfast during the week and we were chatting about this and about whether it should be Mandatory? What's your position yeah. on mandatory vaccinations?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, our our view is that vaccinations should be taking place because they're usually well tested before they're introduced. Um, and and if you don't have all children being vaccinated, uh, it can it can result in a situation like the North Inner City where fourteen children now have, have have measles. Um, you know, it's very easy to create a vaccination scare in society. Um, if you just put out misinformation, one research study misreported. Um, the HPV vaccine um, is a case in point. Um, because what you found there was misinformation went out about the HP uh, vaccine. It actually is going to protect girls later in life from cervical cancer of the worst forms of cancer you can get very intrusive, painful cancer to get with a poor prognosis. And here was a vaccine that was going to protect them from that. Um, and because of the kind of the, the misinformation that went out there, maybe parents don't have the time then to go off and investigate the truth of it. That would be very common. Parents are trying to get through their everyday life. Um, you had a situation where vaccination fell by something like 60, 60%. Really very serious. Mm. So I suppose our view into some of these vaccination programs is that they should be mandatory. But I don't think you should punish parents for not engaging with them. I don't think it's it, it's very helpful. Uh, for children and young people. And you so didn't go on
1: with my argument that I'd be kicking them all out of school.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I never think you should attach uh, access to school or education to anything. You know, so child benefits, vaccination, anything like that. I think school is an absolute must for every child and young person irrespective of what's happened. But I think it goes down to educating parents about the importance of these health programmes and why it's important and necessary. Um, and I wonder if you looked at the North Inner City, you know, I know they have some very good public health nurses there. Do they have enough public health nurses there working with the families on the kinds of programs and supports that they need. That might be the question and debate that we need to have about what's happened there.
1: Yeah, and they say that nudge theory, isn't it? When you want people to do things, carrot is better than stick. It's the the, the evidence uh, in other issues. Uh, Tom, when you talk about uh, HPV, it it strikes me that social media as well I suppose amplifies the anti-vax movement where it was difficult for them to get an airing before. It sure you know, does. Yeah, so Twitter equally validates all opinions. <laughs>
2: There's a lot <laughs> of evidence about that. Although there have been actually some very good campaigns from the HSE where they've really used social media to, to, to fight back. And, and with demonstrable success, it's actually one of the few areas of social media where you can really point to uh, you know, good public health campaigns. So I suppose you've got to fight fire with fire.
1: Richard, potential backlash if you were to have mandatory vaccinations from parents?
0: Yeah, it, it's uh, it's a very emotive subject. So um, all parents want to do the best for their children. So when they hear of a scare, they hear that there's been a case or two, they can put undue weight on that one case. And that means that they then want to protect their child. They don't want to take any risks with their child because their child is so precious to them. And that can mean that you get a swift change in behaviour as all parents parents try to protect their children that can lead to this fall in the level of vaccination. Now we could try to incentivize um, vaccination. Couldn't we, we could try to not, not only make it obligatory, but you could, for instance, you know, not get access to certain state services or, you know, you could make it more, uh, you could give people an incentive to vaccinate, but um, that, that will, that could have a political backlash. I'm not saying that's necessarily a good idea. You may end up developing actually more emphasis on it and creating a social movement behind it that would lead to lower rates of vaccination as people saw it as a sort of a sense of identity. They were a group that were fighting against this injustice. What we found sociologically is better is that first of all you you have to you have to provide good information you have to you have to show people legitimate information that they trust uh, from good sources that that people will recognise but you also need to then tell parents that actually most parents believe that vaccination is a good idea and that most parents believe that uh, that vaccines are well tested and won't have poor outcomes so you're using the power of social norms. And you're changing people's expectations about what other parents are doing to try to change the story, you know, change the framework mm. that people see it in.
1: Yeah, look, I'm conscious. We don't have a huge amount of time left. And I did want to ask about uh, kite flying and budget policy and particularly around childcare? Uh, Tanya, we, we talked about this in the show here last week. We did a survey showing the difference in crash costs over the last five years yeah. in Ireland. They've gone up people won't be surprised to hear that and we would break down county by county and uh, Dublin being the most expensive and obviously within Dublin then you've got very expensive pockets and some maybe cheaper than average pockets as well uh, I spoke to Catherine Zappone uh, Minister for Children and Youth Affairs about this on Monday and She talked about the government. Look, it's her policy, it's her aim that we would eventually get up to what that uh, UNICEF recommended spending is. 1% of GDP, 0.8% is the European average. We're at 0.1, so we're way, way below it. But in terms of a model, you know, I suppose kind of a, 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 a lot of different streams she was talking about and that's the kind of the policy in Ireland. But she also talked about Scandinavia. And in Scandinavia, they have a kind of a fairly uniform system yeah. you know in Norway yeah. the Barnahaga and everyone goes there yeah. we don't have that here yeah. well, what's your position yeah. in terms of what the childcare model should look yeah. like whatever about yeah. the spend
3: yeah I mean w- one of our challenges in Ireland and, and the UK is that we actually have a quite a different childcare system to, throughout Europe because most of the childcare systems in France in Italy in Scandinavia they're actually uh, public provision So there are public creches that are well subsidised by the state and parents pay a small contribution for their children going there. And I suppose there's a different attitude in other countries around childcare. Because the development and education of a child begins on the day that they're born, not on the first day that they go to primary school. So they value early childhood care and education in the same way that they value going to primary and to secondary school. So if you take uh, Finland for example um, they'll have a situation where one in four children will have some intervention for an additional need that they might have. Might be speech and language need, they might have some sort of emotional need Um, and that means when they they start school they're on an equal footing with all other children. I mean they invest significantly, significantly in their childcare services to be able to provide that for all children. And I suppose what we need to do in Ireland is we need to be looking at the quality of what children are getting access to. There's a huge problem at the moment with flight of talent from the early childhood care and education sector. People are going off to get degrees, they come back to their creche and their salaries are really low and they can barely keep a roof over their head. So that's probably one of the first things that um, the Minister for Children and Youth Affairs needs to prioritise and focus on, keeping the talent and the quality with within provision. But the other issue is affordability. It's a huge challenge. I mean, I had two children. They've gone through creches. I calculated uh, during the summer how much I've paid. On my first child, I paid over 36,000 euros on my second child I paid 32,000 euros that's over the last seven years um, and obviously the second preschool year meant I paid 32,000 and said the 36,000 yeah. um, uh, and really that's just not good enough you know like I wouldn't mind if it was a Rolls Royce service that we were all getting and that doesn't say that my, my child's creche wasn't the best crush that we had but that is, it's a huge burden on families to have to pay for that level of provision our taxes should be used to provide a proper childcare system and we have have to make sure that we don't go for the cash route and the, and the tax credit route because that means we won't get the kind of early education settings that we want. That so we no, need.
1: no granny grant. No granny no grant. No granny grant. Yeah, I often think uh, I, I could send my children to the most expensive Primary, p- private primary school in the state to be cheaper than their, yeah. <laughs> than their, their crash <laughs> fees. Uh, Richard, what about that idea? If we set aside the money for a moment. Uh, the idea that the, that the model should be focused more on, on early childhood care and education as opposed to someone who minds the kids. Mm-hmm. It just keeps an eye on them, keeps them safe. Don't let them choke for the few hours you're at work.
0: Yeah, this is the sea change, I think, and we need to go through. Um, Many people have picked up on this, but it's still, I don't think, officially recognised as what we should be aiming for. That preschool is an important part of children's development. In fact, many of the, of the foundations you put in place then will be the basis upon which they can grow and they can develop. So you've got to see that as really valuable time when you're not just trying to keep them safe. You're not just trying to like, you know, warehouse them during the day while parents aren't there. What you're providing are structured education for those children at a really crucial stage. And at the moment, we, we've got, I think this sort of combination of sort of, um, lack of government uh, activity plus the sort of the the economics of it which mean that you've got often low paid um, jobs that don't incentivize people to come and take them when in fact what we need are people with good qualifications who have insight into what uh, how children learn that can that can bring them on this is a model that as you spoke about has been used much more in scandinavia And there, what it's seen as, is being uh, something that children should have access to. If parents want to have children at home and want to parent them and to give them these inputs when they're young, then that's all well and good. But having Parents getting subsidised or free access to high quality childcare means that you, they get a formative experience early on, and it's particularly important for children coming from low income households, households who have sort of lower levels where parents have lower levels of education. Makes a really big difference to their development, and it, it to a certain extent it helps to even out the differences between those more disadvantaged kids and the more advantaged kids, and because the the advantages that those Kids accrue early on will make big differences in their subsequent development.
1: Now, unfortunately, we're actually out of time on that note. Tom Malloy, Head of Public Affairs at Trinity College, Tanya Ward, the CEO of the Children's Rights Alliance, and Richard Lay, Director of the Growing Up in Ireland Study and Professor of Sociology at Trinity. Thank you all very much for coming in. We're going to be back after this quick break.
2: On the record,
1: on, on News Talk.